that this entire first week we've been looking at the great controversy theme and walking step by step down through the successive uh, eras of God's working through the elimination of evil. We've looked at the origin of evil. We looked at some of the deepest questions like, why would God not destroy iniquity the moment it was recognized in Lucifer's heart? And more than that, why did he not destroy him at Calvary if Christ came to destroy the works of the devil and he was victorious? Why not end him there? And yesterday we looked at, well, why not even at the second coming? If all the wicked are destroyed, why is Satan surviving? What is that thousand-year period of time about? So if you missed any of those messages, they will be available on Audioverse in the somewhat near future. I don't know how that works, but um, that's a relatively near future thing. But today, I want to have a hinge between our two weeks. Okay? This, think of this as a fulcrum between the two end points. The first week we looked at the great controversy and your role in it. Okay? In this coming week, we're going to be looking at the work of God on earth, the church, and your role in it. Okay? So we're looking at the big picture, your role in the plan of salvation, your role in the great controversy, and then we're transitioning to now that we know where we are in God's timeline, God's purpose, now we're going to look at where we belong in God's work, in God's people. Okay? So today I want to transition with the two messages being presented today from the first week into the second week. Does that make sense? So this Sabbath, the morning message you're going to have this today, one thing Jesus can't give you, is a standalone message in a sense, but if you don't come to this afternoon's four o'clock meeting, you're going to miss the other side of the coin, okay? So I'm not saying you have to come, but you're going to be dreadfully disappointed if you don't, and you're going to regret it for a very long time, okay? I just want to be forthright with you up front. This is the first half of a two-part series today, and at four o'clock we'll pick the other half up, okay? And one other thing before we go, we've been talking about, and we're going to mention it again today, growing in our walk with Jesus. I'm so pleased that, that through this week the Lord has blessed and that minds have been convinced, hearts have been convicted, and it's my prayer that by yielding to the Holy Spirit, souls will be converted to become more like Jesus. And I want to share with you something that we will have available next week. We don't have it here except for the one copy. I just want to let you know about a little thing called the Discipleship Handbook. I'm on the Training Center Church Committee of the Michigan Conference, and the conference has put out just this year something called a Discipleship Handbook, which is a resource for Seventh Avenue Church members. Ideally, it's meant for new members, but all of us could use a refresher in our daily devotions and our work with the Lord and our, our soul-winning efforts and those things. And so I would encourage you to take a look at that. It's going to be available this next week. I just want to play a quick mention of it so I don't forget and get you see it, but we'll have it here next week. But for right now, we're going to dive into our morning message, One Thing Jesus Can't Give You. Now, of course, we understand that Jesus is omniscient, he's all-powerful, he, he knows everything, can do everything, except for this one thing. But before we dive into a study of God's word, of course, let's begin with a word of prayer. If you would, please bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for another day of life at all, but particularly a Sabbath day of rest and fellowship and worship and service for you. Lord, we have come into this place, not in our own merits, but humbly seeking your mercy. And Lord, yes, we want to be blessed, but help us to not settle for merely being blessed ourselves, but through us may we be a blessing to others. So Lord, we ask you to come into this place now. 
not in a vague, ethereal, general sense, but specifically speak to each mind here. Sharpen our thinking and soften our hearts to receive your truth today. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 13 has kind of been our home-based parable for all of this week. We've been talking about the parable of the wheat and the tares, where Jesus said to the questioning servants of the owner, when they saw that there were tares in the field that he said he sowed with only good seed, yet when the tares appeared, they said, how then does it have tares? There was a discrepancy between what God had said and what they see. And his answer, he said to them, an enemy has done this. Servants said to them, do you want us then to go and gather them up? And remember, this is when they first popped out of the ground, the initial appearance of the tares with the, wheat, uh, with the wheat. The servants were ready to go in right there and clean house. But Christ says, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. We've looked at this concept that God's process for eliminating the wickedness in the world is not because he's lazy or forgetful or doesn't care. It's because he cares. It's his love for the wheat that lets him go through this patient process. He says, let both grow together until what event? The harvest. That is the second coming of Jesus and those final events of earth's history. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And the point I want to highlight once again is at earliest stages of the beginning of the great controversy and the development of wickedness in the earth here and the universe as a whole, if God had said, all right, separate them now, it would have been hard to tell the difference between a wheat and a tear. But apparently at the time of harvest, he will say to those reapers, now, Go gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat in my barn. He entrusts the binding, the gathering, the reaping to his servants at the time of harvest. And he explains what he means. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend. And those who practice lawlessness, that's going to be a key phrase in a minute, those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the fiery furnace, the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. So clearly God is going to release his angels to go gather up to two groups. The tares first, and then the wheat. The righteous and the wicked. Which brings me to this very simple point. When Christ returns, there will be a clear distinction between the righteous wheat and the wicked tares. The angels will be able to tell a difference to which one to pick up. There'll be a distinction. It's a very simple premise. Yet apparently there are some amongst the wheat and the tares who aren't sure which side they're on. Now the angels can spot the difference. But notice the question here. This is from Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, and look at this phrase, you who do what? Practice lawlessness. 
Do you see the same thing? In Matthew 13, what was the distinction between the, re- the righteous and the wicked? The wicked practice lawlessness. Those who do lawlessness will be gathered and bound for the fire. And here Jesus says, there are many who are going to come up to me and say, Lord, here we are. And he's going to say, I never knew you. And what's the distinction? They're practicing lawlessness. It's very simple. And of course, the definition in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. It's a very simple premise. They're going to separate out the wicked, those who practice lawlessness. Some are going to say, Lord, but we did all these things. Yes, but apparently you practice lawlessness. And what does that mean? They're living in sin. And you know that he was manifested for what purpose? To take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. So if God is coming and he is sinless, and he's coming for a people who want to go home with him, he's not going to take anyone who practices lawlessness. That's a pretty simple premise. Has it made sense so far? Okay, let's keep studying. Some will fully expect to go with Christ when he returns, but will not be accepted because they practice lawlessness. Sin. Very simple. Thus we read statements like in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have right... I'm sorry, that's the wrong text. That's Revelation, just to be clear. <laughs> Don't always trust PowerPoint. <laughs> that's one thing you should learn in a university setting. Not everything on the screen is accurate. But let's keep going. Blessed are those who do his commandments. Notice it does not say, blessed are those who hear his commandments. Blessed are those who learn his commandments. Blessed are those who memorize his commandments. That's not the litmus test. Blessed are those who actually what? Do his commandments. That they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city. Over and over, the same issue comes up. Are you actually obeying? Or not? So simple. The Bible makes plain God's expectation of, and praise the Lord, his provision for our obedience. All right, let me break that down again. The Bible makes plain that God expects of us obedience. But that same scripture also explains that God provides through his strength the ability to accomplish it. Okay? So let's walk through this together this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. So Christ came down to show us what the law looked like, lived out. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, do not think that I have come to what? Destroy the law. Apparently people might be tempted It's almost as if he was saying that prophetically, that maybe even in the Christian world, people might get the idea that Christ came to get rid of the law. He said, don't think that. If Christ tells you not to think something, don't think it. Do not think that I came to destroy the law, but I came to do what? Fulfill it, to live it out, to demonstrate what it looks like in flesh and blood. And then he says, now to this you are called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. So he cleared the path, showed the way, gives the provision, and says, now, follow me. And by the way, what are those steps? Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. He says, I'm going to break the power of sin over you. 
I'm going to show you what a life of righteousness looks like, and then I'm going to say, come, follow me. Very simple. Finally, brethren, we urge you and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us, how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your what? Your sanctification. What does God want for us? He wants our sanctification. This is the will of God. Okay, it's the will of God that we be reconciled to him, that we be made citizens of heaven, that we become like Jesus. And so he provides that which what he expects. You see this over and over in Jesus' ministry. He's con continually forgiving people of their sins and then challenging them to a life without. Watch this. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to them, See, you have been made well. Then what are the next three words? Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. He's like, I pulled you out of the hole. You're welcome. Now, stay out of the hole. Sin no more. It's a very simple premise. Christ comes back and says, like, do you realize what has happened here? I have forgiven you. I've cleansed you. I've physically healed you as an evidence of what I can do spiritually for you. Now, go and sin no more. In fact, if there were a three-word phrase that would probably be the thesis statement of the great controversy, it's simply, sin no more. That's the whole issue in the great controversy is iniquity was found in the heart of Lucifer. It was unleashed on God's created universe. And now he's trying to rid the universe of that plague. So he comes down here to demonstrate, to fulfill the law, to show what it's like, and then give us the power to do the same thing. Amen. says, come, sin no more. The other example, when Jesus raised himself up and saw, that, saw no one but the woman... He said to her, woman, where are the, the, those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And of course, if you recall the context and the backstory, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. She was brought before Jesus to see what he would do. And what does Christ do? He doesn't say a word out loud. What does he do? He writes down in the sand. And what was he writing? Sins. He just starts listing out sins. And notice in the scripture, it says that they started leaving from the oldest to the youngest. And then he stands up, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. And he had just given evidence that there's not one there who is without sin, so they had to walk away. And she the whole time is bracing for that. First. If I knew I was going to be stoned, I would probably, you know, have my head down. I'd be crouched. I wouldn't be paying attention to a lot else. I'd just be waiting for that first impact. But Jesus says to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, Christ offers us two things through the blood of Calvary. Pardon for our past sins and power over future temptation. And I'll just tell you right now, there are far too many Christians who are happy and content with a 50% Jesus. 
Everybody loves the pardon. Yay, go and... Well, just to say go. <laughs> Neither do I condemn you. Woohoo! Go! And don't worry about it. <laughs> they just... That's right. But Jesus never finishes that way. He says, now I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Christ offers sinners not only pardon for past sins, but power for future victory. And this is key to the great controversy. Because if it doesn't actually work, the whole thing falls apart. And that's what the angels are so concerned about when they hear the good news that we're going to come up and live with them. Remember John chapter 14? Jesus says so kindly, so warmly, so inspiringly, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And we say, yay, he wants us to go to heaven with him. But from Gabriel's perspective, he's like, no. <laughs> we fought a war over this. We lost friends because of this. Was that my son? <laughs> Amen. Amen. Good boy. Building preachers in our house. That's how we do it. That's right. right. But you get it from the heavenly perspective. This is a huge deal. For Mars, like, woohoo, we get a new house. We get a new place. We're going to dolphins and giraffes and wings and gold streets. And... But from heaven's perspective, would we actually be safe to save? Does God's plan make any sense? So Christ offers us not only pardon, but power. Thus we see texts over and over in Scripture reminding us this, inspiring to this high ideal. No temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, has seized you except what is common to man, and God is what? Faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Please don't misread that. It does not say he will not let you be tempted. <laughs> don't think that when you come out of the water of baptism that now you're floating on a, you know, a little cloud of impervious to all influence. No, you're not. You've got a target on your back. Satan hates you a lot. He didn't like you before, but now he's real against you because you have the audacity to stand up, speak out, and rebel against his government. You're defecting, and he don't like it. But God gives this promise. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. So whatever you're going through, number one, there's nothing supernaturally above and beyond what anybody else has faced, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, again, that's not an if. Temptation is a when. But when you are tempted... He will also provide a way out that you can stand up under it. Amen. How about this one? James chapter 4 and verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he just might flee. Hopefully it'll work. Flex real hard and maybe just... May no. Resist the devil and he will flee when we submit ourselves to God. Now, if you step out of that walk with Christ and say, I've got this one, all of a sudden you're Peter on the waves. Or more accurately, Peter in the waves. Right? But if you submit yourself to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. 
Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, my brethren, Paul says, be strong, how? In the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Clearly, Christ provided a victory, but now he says, I want you to walk in that victory. I want you to take that as your own. He's not looking for merely a paper transaction. He's looking for a personal transformation that he fuels through his power. Let's be clear about this. And I love Jude 24, 25. His closing comments, he says, Now to him, that is God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. He says, I want to close this letter off by reminding you that God can keep you from stumbling and present you faultless. It's a high ideal. But I've wrestled with this one now. Wait a minute. But doesn't the Bible say that when Christ returns, we will be changed? The implication is I'm going to be kind of, you know, faulty, falling me all the time. And when Jesus Christ comes on the way up, then I become a trustworthy citizen of heaven. Let's study what actually occurs in the righteous as they go up into heaven with Jesus Christ. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Friends, what is sleep a reference for in the Bible? Death, Death, right? It's an unconscious state of non-being, and he says not everyone's going to experience it. I believe this is particularly written for our time today. I am fully convicted there are people in this room who will not taste death before Jesus comes. We are living in the last days of earth's history, and soon and very soon we're going to see our king. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all, sleeping or waking, be what? Changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. So there it is, friends. Jesus come, dum da dum the voice of the archangel, rise. I don't know what he'll say, but I hope it's something like that. And it'll echo like thunder through the earth, and on the way up, we become changed. That's true. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. But let's ask the deeper question. What about us does God change at the second coming? What actually changes on the way up? Well, the Bible is pretty clear about this too. Romans chapter 8, verses 11 and 23. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal, what? Bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, which he defines as the redemption of our body. Mortal bodies. Redemption of our body. Let's keep going. Philippians chapter 3. He goes back to this theme again. For our citizenship is in heaven. Now this is an important point. Notice that that is in the present tense. 
We can currently have our citizenship on the books of heaven right now. Yet we're still living here. We have dual citizenship, if you will, right? My true home is there, but my uh, passing through is here for now. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which, speaking of heaven, we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly, what? Body. That it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Over and over, the Bible tells us exactly what we receive, what will be changed and made new at the second coming. And what is it? Our body. Now, I'll admit I'm not that old. I'm older than I used to be. There's plenty of people in the room who are older than me. You know. But already, I wouldn't be opposed to a new body. I could use a new back, new knees. I'm 6'2", wouldn't mind being 6'3". Get rid of all the gray. Whatever, you know, any negative. I, w- I want to have that flawless, like, health message Loma Linda body. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I want to be living in that blue zone for the rest of eternity. I want that. Okay? And that's the way we were originally designed to be, right? In the image of God, physically healthy, wonderful bodies, never meant to die. We're not built to wind down. We're meant to wind up and keep going, right? And someday when Jesus returns, that's what he's going to give his saints. New physical bodies. Praise the Lord. Har High Calling, page 278. Sister White writes, When Christ shall come, our vile bodies are to be changed and made like his glorious body, but the vile character will not be made holy then. The transformation of character must take place before his coming. Let's wrestle with that a while. If he's called me to be good, can't he just make me good? Well, no. That's one thing Jesus can't give you. You see, the same God who formed Adam from the dust can make you a new body in a moment. He's already made bodies before, out of dust, right? He scooped it up, he formed and fashioned it, he filled it with the breath of life and brought it into existence and man became a living soul. Creating a physical body is nothing for Jesus Christ. He can do that easy. Easy. But here's the difference. It's a key distinction. A body can be given, but a character must be grown. A body can be given as a, here's a new back. Thank you. But he can't do that with a character. God cannot give you a new character. It can only be grown through your own personal experience. Let me tell you, friends, I know that there's plenty of Christians, they may not articulate it out loud, but have every intention of living this life, you know, keeping their toe, like, on the God button or something, having that ticket in their hand, that transactionary idea of of, of salvation. 
And that when God comes, even though they're not really that interested in him now, really, they don't really like keeping his law, but they know they need to live with him forever. So on the way up, he's going to make them appreciate all the things of heaven and obedient to the law and all the... No. That's not how it works. Though he can give you a body fit for heaven, the one thing Jesus can't give you is a character fit for heaven. Notice the process language. Remember we already saw, now our citizenship is in heaven. And someday we'll get a new body. Watch this now. 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. Amen? Amen. We can be children of God this moment. Our citizenship should be on the books of heaven. We can be his on paper, signed, sealed, and delivered. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Do you notice that? We can be a child of God now and yet still not be at the end of the process of what we shall be. Is there growth in Christ or is it merely a transaction that gets you in? No, 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 no. Once you accept Jesus Christ, he goes to work on you, right? Now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know. He's like, we don't know exactly what that looks like at the end, but we do know this. We know that when he is revealed, what's that a reference to? The second coming. We shall be what? Please do not read into that sentence what is not there. It does not say that when he is revealed, we shall be made like him. It does not say that. It simply says that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. And this is, I love the simplicity of this logic. How do we know for sure? For we shall see him as he is. And the implication is, and won't die from it. Right? I've mentioned this before, but there are plenty of people, hundreds, thousands, perhaps even millions, heaven forbid billions, who are going to live to the second coming. But simply living at the chronological moment of Christ's return has no inherent value. I don't want to merely settle for living to the second coming, though I believe it will be in my lifetime. I want to be part of that generation that lives through the second coming and gets to see Jesus as he is. Now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we do know this. That when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And notice what he concludes with. And everyone who has this hope, the hope of seeing Jesus as he is, does what in the meantime? Purifies himself to what extent? Just as he is pure. The goal of this life is to form a character like Jesus Christ's. That's what we're here for. Yes, we should take care of our body along the way. Yes, it helps in the formation, but the new body is going to come. By the way, the reason for the health message is not to extend our 90 to 100. Amen? It's to physically give ourselves the best opportunity to deform a character like Christ's so that instead of settling for 100, we can go for 100 trillion. See what I'm saying? The health message is built for eternity, not just for earth. Watch this now. Jesus says all these big things that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter all try to put into different words, and Jesus says it this simply. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. They're the ones who get to see God. And again, the implication is, and not die from it, 
which that's a big deal. You think about Exodus 33. Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, well, <laughs> I'll show you, but I can't show you my face because no one shall see my face and live. But apparently there will be some who see Jesus as he is. I want to be part of that. So how do we accomplish that? What is Christ's method for making this a reality? 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, this is present tense now, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Do we look to see Jesus directly face to face right now? No. But how do we see Jesus? We see him reflected in the word of God in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Right? So we behold God. You imagine God is there in heaven. We are here on earth. And he doesn't bid us open up the gates of heaven and look directly at him. We would be eviscerated. It's a bad plan. But what he says is, I'm going to veil my divinity in humanity, live a life of exemplary perfection, and let you gaze at that and behold the glory of God as in a mirror. And what happens as we behold? We are being transformed into what? The same image, and notice this, from glory to glory. He's going to take us from one step and say, good job. Let's go to the next step. What God is going to do is completely rebuild you from the inside out. Like an onion, he's going to peel back layers. He's like, oh, good, we took care of that. Did you see there's more? Yep. <laughs> we work on that. And what happens is step by step, you become more like Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed in your life, but every day I look in the mirror, I see the exact same me, and I've seen the same me for 30 plus years now. But if you were to see me 15 years ago and see me today, you'd see a difference. I don't see a difference because the changes are so small, so imperceptible, so incremental that if I just see it close up every day, every day, every day, I don't know how long that's going to last. I don't know if I'm going to wake up at 80 and be like, yep, still 30. <laughs> you know? I don't know when it's going to dawn on me that, nope, you are not a kid anymore. But from the outside, it's very easy. You do in chunks. And this is what happens when you grow in Christ. You start right where you are. He meets you right there. And he starts to walk with you. And as you behold Christ and you start to Think about his life and consider him and start to reflect on that in your own heart and experience. Say, here's God's standard. Here's what it looks like to live a life that would be fit for heaven. You start just kind of walking along that way. This is the salvation process. With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Hey friends, the Holy Spirit is not given to make us more powerful. It's given to make us more Christ-like. To build within us a character fit for heaven. I love this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing. If you want to have confidence in something, here it is. That he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. If he starts something in you, and you don't run away from the process, but you abide in him, he will give you the power to take the next step and the next step and the next step so that when he comes, we shall see him as he is. Till the day of Jesus Christ. 
Let me tell you an illustration. Let me share this with you. Let's say that you lived at point A, some, uh, some, some house that backs up next to some wilderness area there for several, couple, two or three city blocks worth, and on the other side is your job. And the only way you have to get there is to walk. And you look at this, and this wilderness that covers it is not just a grassy field, but I mean it's like trees and bushes and briars, thorns, thistles, the whole, everything bad, right? And the first day you say, I'm going to go from here to there, you realize it's going to take some time, you leave a little early for work because you've got to plow through this mess. And you very tenderly and very carefully take your first steps into the thicket. And you got to take the next step, and you're like trying to move things away, and it's just a laborious, time-taking task. It's, it, it, you get cuts and bruises along the way. It is a pain. And hot and sweaty, like an hour and a half later, <laughs> you arrive at work a complete mess. But you made it. Now you work your eight-hour day. Probably one of the worst days of your life. <laughs> New job, this thing, and now you're like, uh-oh, i got to go home. So you head back, and it takes you basically the same amount of time. You might see a couple broken pieces where you, oh, that's where I was earlier, but you really can't tell the difference, right? Hour and a half later, or hour and 28 minutes later, you know, it's a little bit better, but you really can't tell. The next day when you start off, you go through the process again, and the next day, and the next day. But after a couple weeks, when you wake up in the morning, you no longer choose which path you're going to take you just kind of start walking down that path, right? And you'll notice that there's some changes in the path. What's going to change? It's kind of worn down a little bit, right? It's kind of some things are backed up, some things are knocked down, patted down in the ground. And it doesn't take quite as long. You're down an hour and 15 minutes. Two months go by, got that thing at 45 minutes flat. <laughs> Six months go by. And it's not like you're like deciding what you're going to go. You just get up and just start walking. And you know exactly what to step up. You kind of got it, kind of got it down, right? But you let a year go by. And you don't even have to step over stuff anymore. You've just ground it all, and you've made yourself a nice four-lane highway right through there, right? So you just get up, do-do-do-do-do, walking to work. It's the same distance. But what has changed? You've worn down a path. This is how our brains work. Every time we make a choice, right, it becomes a little bit easier to make that choice next time, right? Which brings me to this point. Character is not built in a day, but it is built day by day. Do you see the distinction between that? There's nowhere in the Bible that ever teaches instantaneous justification, sanctification, and glorification all at the same moment. I accept Christ, boom, my character's changed, my body's right, ooh. It's not like that. He says, all right, I'm going to make you mine on paper, and I'm going to make you mine in person. Let's start walking. And day by day, you start to build and form a character, either more like Christ's, or if you reject his offers of invitation and mercy and decide against him, you're forming a character more like his enemy. You're becoming either a 
wheat or a tear. See, here's how it works. You've probably seen this before, but it's so important. Each decision that we make establishes a pattern in our mind so that when we come back to that decision, there's less deliberation about it next time. It's just a little easier to make it. And if we repeat that decision enough times, those decisions, which were individually one-off choices, develop into habits. It just kind of becomes something you do, right? But if you do the habit enough times, it goes beyond just a thing that you do. It becomes a lifestyle, a way that you live. Right? What was once a decision then became a habit, and if practiced enough, that becomes a lifestyle. It becomes just how you live your life. And if you continue in that lifestyle, you have formed a character. And those decisions are no longer what you do. Those decisions are who you are. Decisions become habits, which become in turn lifestyles, and lifestyles develop a character. And friends, it is our character that determines destiny. Now, apparently, all along this way, you can be professedly Christian. But what did, Timothy, what did Paul write to Timothy about? In the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. And he gets a whole list of all this stuff. But he says, having a form of what? Godliness. All doing it with a pious, you know, declaration that I am in Christ. I'm a member of his church. My name is on the church books. I'm a... He said, having a form of godliness, but denying its what? Power. Then these will be the sort who say, Lord, Lord. But he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. He didn't say you who fall into it. He said, you who do what? Practice it. You do it. Over and over and over and though you want the kingdom, you haven't in this life developed a character that would want to be with the king. I've mentioned this before, but I want you to think about it today again. You know the wicked want to go to heaven too, right? Evil people like streets of gold. Eternal life sounds good to everybody. But not everybody's going to go. So what makes the difference? It's this process right here. The decisions that you make. There's why there is, in, in, in the scripture, there's an imperative placed on today. It's something completely separate from the impending second coming, though I believe it will be soon and very soon. Or even the possibility that you might die. Because all of us have lived lives of a certain extent, and all of us know that Jesus hasn't come yet. And I'm guessing not one of us in the room fully expects Jesus to come by about 2 o'clock this afternoon. Everyone here has lunch plans. Right? Now, I don't mean to put that down or joke. I'm saying Jesus could come. But we are building a life with the expectation, he, yeah, he'll come soon-ish, but not like, you know, 
now. And we're probably right. Our experience has demonstrated that that's how I lived yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before and the year before that and the year before that and the decade before that. And the same thing with living life. Not one person in this room has died. I, I assume, right? <laughs> Every one of us had a yesterday, is currently living a today, and fully expects a tomorrow. Yeah? Now, of course, and I don't want to, you know, put a wet blanket on anything. Somebody might die in this room. I'm hoping not. But for most of us, we're not going to die in the next few days. So why make a decision for Jesus Christ now? If he's not coming, probably, you know, and I'm not going to die, probably, then I've got a little time to... No. You notice in the Old Testament, way back in the day, choose you this day whom you will serve. Why? Because every choice that we make is building us into the person that we will be tomorrow. And if you're a person today who hears the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, but you close that avenue, tomorrow you may not be a person who wants it anymore. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Character isn't formed in a day, but it is formed day by day. And it could start for you today. Salvation is more than merely getting into heaven. It is fitting into the society of heaven. And the preparation for that is the purpose of this life. I love this. Listen to the language here. It's just, what great writing. Signs of the Times, July 31, 1893. If we would see heaven, we must have heaven below. Listen to this phrase. We must have a heaven to go to heaven in. Do you need a minute? <laughs> That's deep. Third grade education, please. <laughs> we must have a heaven to go to heaven in. He's coming from heaven to take heaven back. What on earth does that mean? Are we supposed to pay streets of gold here? Of course not. Heaven's not about the kingdom, it's about the king. And creating a life that would fit in there is what this life is for now. If we would see heaven, we must have heaven below. We must have a heaven to go to heaven in. I love this one, in heavenly places, page 142. We are individually now testifying to the world of the power and the grace of the grace of Christ in the transformation of human character from glory to glory, from character to character. In beholding Christ our pattern, who is pure and holy and undefiled, we are being prepared for the society of the heavenly angels. And listen to the simplicity of this rhetorical question. If Christ is to be our head and prince in the heavenly courts, it becomes us to inquire. I love that. We really should ask. It becomes us to inquire. What is Christ to us now? Friends, if we don't love Jesus and his law and his ways and his work, now what on earth makes you think you're going to love it for the rest of eternity? He's not going to force you to like him. God doesn't operate by coercion. He operates by conversion. He's not a transaction God. He's a transformation God who changes you to be like him. It's a very logical question. What is Christ to us now? Have you ever thought about it? Do you really even want to go to heaven? Let's spend a minute. I can't tell you how many weeks of prayers at academies and 
colleges even, young people will say, honestly, in my heart of hearts, I'm not sure I want to go because I'm afraid I might get bored. I'm not making this up. But I applaud their sincerity. I mean, how many rides can you do on the dolphin before you're like, next? Right? If heaven is just a really big, good Disney, have we trained ourselves to think that that's what the kingdom's about? It's just stuff. It's just a place. It's just good weather. It's just nice food. That's what it is. But then you start to stretch it out. All right, a hundred trillion years of that? When I was a little kid, my mom would ask me this question, especially if I was, in fact, exclusively when I was doing something naughty. She would say, now, Cameron, could you do what you're doing now if Jesus were here with you? hated that question. <laughs> of course I can't do what I'm doing now with Jesus right here. Couldn't watch that on, I couldn't do, I couldn't play those games, I couldn't say those, I couldn't, I know. But she had a point. I've come to find out my mother was wise. <laughs> But if we're going to live with Jesus for the rest of eternity and we don't really like him now, what makes us think that we're going to like him then? If we want to have confidence and not be ashamed when Jesus comes, here's the key to life. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28. And now, little children, what should we be doing now? Abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. When Jesus returns, I want to actually go with him. Not for the streets of gold, not for the animals and not for the food, not for the weather and not for the wings, but because I just love life with Jesus. That's it. And the whole purpose of this life is deciding if we even want the life to come that he's offered us through his pardon and power. So it does. Become us to inquire. What is Christ to us now? Let me ask you a question. I've asked it every day. Has the presentation today at least made sense? Was it clear? Praise the Lord. But being convinced of the truth is just the first step. It is my prayer that even right now, the conviction of God's word is landing on your heart. You say, now I understand it, and something in my life may not square with it, and I don't know what it is in your life, but it's something. It may be something that you realize I'm having a form of godliness, but I'm denying its power in my life. That in reality, I'd rather live here than there. And though this world should not be my home, I've kind of settled in. 
So I don't know what it is for you. And it may not be something, but I'm guessing that there's some issue, some lawlessness in your life that you know. You don't need a Bible study to tell you. Just know that you couldn't do that if Jesus were here with you. And today, you understand from God's word and you feel the conviction in your heart and you say, Lord, I want to be done with that and I want to walk with you. I want to learn to like you and your laws and your ways and your word. I want to become more like Jesus. So friends, if you want to commit to that today, I would ask you to take a second step and stand with me as we close for prayer. And I want to make one special appeal. While you're standing... It may not apply to everybody that there may be somebody here who they know that there is some obstacle in their life, some roadblock, some thing that they treasure more than Jesus, and they fear they might even risk giving up eternity to keep this stupid sin. If that's you, we're going to have a closing prayer. And right now, if you want to have special prayer, I want to invite you to come down front. I'm going to have just a word of prayer with you. And as we sing a closing song, I'll just talk to you for a second, have a special word of prayer with you. But if there's somebody here while I'm praying who wants to come down and meet for just a minute, say, you know what? I'd like special prayer. You don't have to tell me what it is. It's between you and the Lord, but you want it to end today. That's my appeal to you. Don't feel bad if nobody comes. I don't want that big television moment where we come swarming down front. But if there's something between you and your master, you and your savior, and you want to be done with the day, while I'm having my closing prayer, if you want to just slip out and meet me on the side over here, we'll just have a word of prayer together. Do we understand? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much that you give us the promise, you give us this life at all. We didn't deserve this. We certainly don't deserve the redemption that you provided in your only son, Jesus Christ. But Lord, we understand that this world is not our home, yet there are temptations and pulls for us to settle in here instead of having a higher ideal of walking with you. And Lord, right now in this room, there may be someone who's struggling with something in their life. There may be something, some ridiculous, nonsensical, stupid little sin that to other people may not seem like a big deal, but to them, it's tearing them apart. Lord, I would ask you right now that the convincing that's happened in their mind would land in the heart with conviction and that yielding would occur and that people may be converted to you even now. So Lord, thank you for taking us where we are and thank you for not leaving us there but walking us closer to your kingdom. Help everyone here to make decisions that will lead to habits of godliness, a lifestyle of Christ-likeness, in a character like Jesus. Lord, we ask you right now to keep us faithful to you until we see Jesus come. And when he does come, that not one here will be missing. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.